Hi, my name is Dr. Kara King, and my co-host, Dr. Mary Rensel, and I want to welcome you to the Women's Professional Staff Association podcast called Inspirations and Insights from Cleveland Clinic Women Docs. In this podcast, we will share conversations with women doctors from all career stages and practices, exploring the highlights and challenges of being a woman in medicine. We hope these thought-provoking stories inspire you and provide insight into the unique challenges and accomplishments of remarkable women docs. Welcome back to Inspirations and Insights from Cleveland Clinic Women Docs. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are very excited to have Dr. Serpil Erzurum on our show today. Serpil has been a member of the Cleveland Clinic staff since 1993 and is a chair of the Lerner Research Institute of Cleveland Clinic. She's a practicing pulmonologist and has innumerable scientific accomplishments and awards that have been far-reaching, including more than 200 peer-reviewed articles and more than 20 federal grants. We hope you enjoy our discussion today as we dive into characteristics of effective leaders, the importance of psychological safety, and the power of mentorship. Welcome to Dr. Serpil Erzurum to our WPSA podcast, and we are so thrilled to have you today, Serpil. So thank you for your time. Thank you. So I want to take a moment to congratulate you on your new global center for pathogen research that you are helping to lead. Now, this is a really exciting and incredible accomplishment. Can you tell us a little bit about this center? Well, thanks so much. It's very exciting for me to see it all come together. I I really uh, just helped organize the whole team. The leaders that put this together were amazing scientists, clinicians, really that came up with the idea prior to the COVID pandemic. In fact, we started on this path towards pathogen research in early 2019, before COVID was even in our dialect. So we were recruiting for cancer research and inflammation research, two of our focus areas for research at the Cleveland Clinic. And we had stellar candidates. We ended up recruiting Thad Steppenbach from Washington University and Jay Jung from University of Southern California and Tim Chan from Sloan Kettering and Michaela Gack from University of Chicago. Now, all of them were studying inflammation in some form and fashion and the response our bodies has to foreign invasion, either by a pathogen, a virus, or perhaps cancer. Jay Jung and Michaela Gack were specifically focused on pathogen research, viruses that invade the body and cause consequent disease, not just the infectious disease, but even sequelae of those viruses. So it was really Dr. Jung who proposed that there should be a pathogen research center with the Cleveland Clinic because of our global footprint. We have infectious diseases here, of course, in Ohio, but much more in Florida and in Abu Dhabi and London. And it made sense, and our CEO, Dr. Mihalovich, agreed. And so we recruited Dr. Jung to lead cancer biology, the Department of Cancer Biology, but also to start a new center of pathogen research. And that was formalized in 2019 and approved by our Board of Governors. And then when all these leaders came to the Cleveland Clinic and joined our team, we had just started to learn about SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. And the pandemic became a reality here in Northeast Ohio and really all around the globe, uh, late 2019, early 2020. And then it became imperative that we work together to rapidly advance the missions that we already hold so dear, research, discovery for innovations to help patients. And so we put together the team 
And the, the new center, which is a larger, more encompassing center, is the Center for Pathogen Research and Human Health. I didn't realize that all this was in the works before even COVID. I just, you know, automatically thought that, that COVID was, you know, the catalyst for this. But that's pretty remarkable at, at, at your insight and what needed to happen. Well, it was really all of us collectively. And I, I, I always, I really give a, all the credit to Dr. Mihalovich, who saw it immediately upon presentation and said, yeah, we have to do this. You know, um, there's a saying, chance favors the prepared mind. So we could not, in a moment's notice, have put together this team. There would have been no way. It would have been impossible. But because we had the right team and the right culture and values, we were rapidly able to come together, even though these individuals had never really worked together before, to put it together and then move it forward to benefit the world. So I want to dive into this team building that you did a bit and the diversity and, and how you built this collaboration. So I know you have prioritized diversity in the workforce at the Lerner Research Institute from the very beginning, and you've stated that diversity in thinking leads to better solutions and is critical for success. And you've also stated that team science is the future. So can you t- talk a little bit about how you've accomplished this diversity when creating teams and what strategies have you used to foster team collaboration as well as effectiveness? Diversity is what gives us strength in every form and fashion. I know for myself personally, my own laboratory teams, my working administrative team, I want diverse ideas. Diverse ideas come from different kinds of people. If we have all the same sorts of people on the team, we're going to have all the same idea. Coming from different backgrounds, cultures, gender, race, ethnicity, Everything and all above allows us to view the world through the eyes of that other person as we communicate in the team openly and authentically with each other. There has to be, there has to be great psychological safety in a team to have diversity and allow for honest input to the team. So I think that's one of the most important things that I personally foster in my teams It's one of the things I always tell individuals when they join our team, you should speak up. We want to hear your ideas. We want you to listen to the other people's ideas. That's the only way we can get to a collective solution. Everyone all together is smarter than some of us and certainly more than one of us. And so when you have that sort of team with security around their ability to speak up, that they'll be heard, uh, that they won't be judged, that there's value to what they say, it is then a pretty magical thing that happens to the team where there's a great deal of joy in coming together that way. Fun things happen, creative things happen, things you could never have imagined start to happen. So I think that's partly how I hope my teams feel and I hope that they will always feel that way. So whether it's a smaller team that I have or the larger team of the center or the research institute or even across the entire Cleveland Clinic when I, when I work in teams, you play different roles. Sometimes the role is really to listen deeply and other times it's to speak up, work together. I love the idea of psychological safety. That's the, that's the only space that true forward motion can happen. And I was recently reading, you know, you need to create a, a space that's, that's psychologically safe, not only to say what I want to hear, but the truth, right? Yeah. And so you really need to have that different lens to, to make that synergistic movement forward. So I think that's a really important point that you make. 
So I want to kind of switch to leadership. So in your experience, what characteristics or attributes are most important in a leader? And also, do you think these characteristics differ at all between men and women? Oh, my gosh, that's a great question. Uh, Leadership traits. When I think about people that I enjoyed working for, people that led me on my path, I can describe some of the attributes that I thought really made them a great leader. I guess number one would be integrity, which means honesty, fairness, this ability, even if I didn't like the decision the leader made, I understood why. They were transparent about it. And at the end of the day, even if it wasn't personally good for me, I could see it was the right thing to do. So someone who does the right thing, even when it's not convenient, and is transparent and honest about it. Integrity is the most important thing, I think, in a leader. Coming with that, the second most important thing and something that we all try to do every day is communicate. Communication means they really listen. They don't just talk. And when they listen, they hear and they respond. So that back and forth communication is so very important. It's not just sending uniform direction outward, but receiving it inward, processing, making it part of their strategy. So I put communication right there at the top with integrity. A third thing that I find very important in leadership is a sense of humor. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Some of the best people I've ever worked for It was fun because they kept their calm, their cool, and collected under pressure and really could keep a perspective that allowed still some humor. And, you know, humor about themselves, the ability to poke fun at themselves and recognize uh, their own limitations, perhaps, through the humor. It also creates camaraderie and collegiality to laugh together, to share a viewpoint that is so silly, you know, silly because it's true. <laughs> why, why it's funny, it's funny because it's true. <laughs> exactly. And you, can, you can say a lot of things with humor that, you know, otherwise might not be so easy to relate to. So I, I guess uh, there would be so many more to list, but I guess if you have those three things, you could work through the rest. That's fantastic. I wouldn't have originally thought of a sense of humor, right? That kind of snuck up on me. But I think that probably goes along with your psychological safety, right? Like showing that you're humble and that you have your weaknesses and being able to poke fun at that. I bet you that really builds the, the team overall. You're absolutely right. So when you are together with your team and it's obvious that I've done something that's kind of silly or maybe the world has done something silly and you can share it with the team, it leads to psychological safety because, you know, Circle said that and we all <laughs> laugh at it. And then maybe I could say something too. And it's a shared view of the world that allows us to speak more openly, perhaps about other things. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I want to go back to, you, to your communication piece for a moment as well. You know, I think listening for the sake of listening and not listening for the sake of responding, it's so subtle. But I think that oftentimes when people speak, and I'm at fault of the, for this as well, as I'm already trying to think about how I'm going to respond, right? And I think you make a really, really subtle but important point that listening for the sake of listening is very unique and distinct. 
Thank you. I learned that from a prior mentor who told me that when I became a full professor and a staff member, I had a lot of young people I was mentoring and talking to students, uh, postdoctoral fellows. And he said that when I met with those young people that I needed to listen very carefully and focus on them as if they were the only person in the world for the 15, 20 minutes maybe that I would spend with them because they had probably been thinking for days, if not weeks, what they were going to be telling me. So to really listen, focus, and then understand before you can reply. And I have always treasured that advice. It, it's very meaningful to people. You just gave me goosebumps, truly, because I feel like that's so rare now, especially when we have cell phones. I've got dings from emails. I've got so many things that when you're speaking with someone, I can think about the times when I've sat down with a mentor that I've been preparing for for weeks and they're on their phone the whole time. And just what that feels like to have them not present. It's just it's it, it can be really debilitating for your for your mentee. So really good point. Yeah, I'm so glad you recognize that to be present for someone is really attending to them. I, I agree with you. Yeah. Moving on. So, uh, Serple, you've been described as the rare triple threat physician scientist, excelling as a researcher, clinician, and educator. And, you know, that's everyone's dream <laughs> within academia. And, you know, when, when you first set out in your career, it's so hard to know what to say yes to and what to say no to and, and, and how to make yourself this triple threat. Can you describe any critical moments in your life that changed the direction of your career? Well, thank you for saying that. I, I hear that and I, I never can quite absorb it. I don't know how to answer that question. I, I think about it sometimes. I never imagined my career would take this direction. I, I never had the idea that I would make a career doing research and innovation. I just did what I enjoyed doing. And I've been so fortunate to have great mentors and advice along the way. I do work hard. I mean, it just takes a lot of hard work, and there is some good fortune involved, right? I had some great mentors, some real fortune with how I was able to uh, make some discoveries that turned out to be important, and the teams that I've worked with have been fantastic. The one thing I'll say is I don't necessarily say no to things, but I do prioritize so that... I have, in my mind, a sense of how much time I'm going to spend on any one thing. And it's the advice I give young people now. When they say, well, should I do, they'll come with a list of things. Should I do all these things? And I'll ask, well, is it more important than spending time with your family? Is it more important than you know, enjoying time with your friends? Because we all are human beings and we have to have a complete life. Even though I worked very hard, I always prioritized my children, and uh, I never regretted it. And so what I do tell people is you, you don't necessarily have everything all at the same time. And it sounds silly, but it's true. And I really think that's an important concept for men and women. You can devote large amounts of your time, invest your entire energy into one thing, but I would not encourage you to do it for very long periods of time. And hopefully the balance that I have comes with 
partitioning my priorities over the course of my lifetime. You know, I don't know how other people do it, but that's how I did it. Again, one of my mentors gave me great advice. It sounds old fashioned now. When I was training and I was rounding with one of my mentors in Colorado, and he said, Circle, it doesn't matter what happens. Always get home to dinner with your family, even if you have to go back to work. And I never forgot that either. And I thought, that's right. Even if I have to work after dinner, I should spend time with the family. And what he was saying was making time for family, whatever that family time means to you. Again, I think that's how I find balance inside myself where I feel content. Your wisdom is incredible. Wow. From my mentors. <laughs> what I'm hearing you say is that, number one, you can't pour from an empty cup. So if you don't tend to your own needs, then, then you're not going to be able to put that energy into things maybe professionally, research-wise, clinically. And, um, and I think that's so important. And the other thing I'm hearing you say is that your goals and you know things are going to ebb and flow depending on where you are in your life, right? And I've never heard anyone say, you know, look at, <laughs> look at your goals over the course of your lifetime. But that's, that's realistically what we should be looking at. But I feel like as physicians, we're always like, now, right? I need to get these things in now in this three-month window, this six-month window. But taking a step back and, and maybe flexing with, with your priorities as your life changes is, is a really important piece of advice. You said it so much better than I did. So I'm glad I could communicate it. But that's exactly right. So there are times in my life, and I'm sure in everyone's life, where eh, just relax a little. I, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's healthy. Yes, absolutely. So I want to dive into that a little bit more. So talk to me about, I mean, you must have these periods of time of self-reflection. You have to allow yourself space to understand where your priorities are. How do you build that in right now? I'm, I'm just curious. Do you journal? Do you meditate? Are you, or do you run? Like there must be some place that you're reflecting to be able to ebb and flow with your needs. That, that's a really tough question for me. I know people journal. I, I've never been a person to journal. But I have good friends who do that, and they really enjoy it. I, I used to run, and that used to be how I reflected and kind of centered myself. I, I enjoyed running for decades, but stopped that a couple of years ago. So for me, I really like creating uh, peaceful spaces. So I've been working on my home, trying to create a space that is peaceful, calm, a creative kind of space. So I've been pouring a lot of my time and energy into my yard, my home, and friends. I love that. Are you familiar with the word hygge? No. I'm obsessed with this word. I think it's spelled H-Y-G-G-E. It's a word from Denmark, and there's no straight definition into our language, but it's, it encompasses exactly what you just said in regard to, like, safe space, good conversation, candlelight, you know, this like really good, just like wholesome feeling that nurtures creativity and relationships. Yes. I love that. Okay. I have one last question for you. Is that all right? Yes. I, I'm, I'm learning from you. I wrote that <laughs> word down. <laughs> I'm going to look it up. It is my <laughs> next time somebody asks me, I'm going to use that word. It's going to sound really smart. <laughs> no, I'm telling you that word, like when I wake up in the morning, I just say hygge and it like puts me into a Fantastic. good mental space. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So you have been uh, awarded a million awards, but the one that really touched me was this Elizabeth Rich Award from the American Thoracic Society for your extensive and successful mentoring of trainees and junior faculty. And you've really inspired so many young faculty, and especially women in medicine and science. I'm just curious of 
any tips that you have for young faculty or trainees in choosing mentors? So how do you, how do you recommend that, that, that young people choose mentors? Do you think that we should only have one? Should we have multiple? How do you foster that relationship? Well, first of all, thank you for mentioning that award. That's one of the awards that means the most to me. It is, I really got emotional when I was awarded that. It means so much to me. One of the most important things that I've done in my life is I hope I've helped people in their careers and their personal life. You know, you, you have a lot of mentors over your life. And I've mentored, I don't know, so many people in different ways. It's sometimes structured, sometimes not so structured, casual. It can be, you know, check-ins once in a while with people. How are you doing? Supporting them emotionally. Sometimes helping them with their careers, sponsoring them, going places introducing them to people. So I've had so many mentors of different types of people. I mean, my advice is probably atypical. I suggest you have a lot of mentors and you have mentors and sponsors and you learn from each and every one of them. You incorporate bits and pieces of those individuals into your own makeup. When I think about how I mentor, it's based on how my mentors mentored me because I've spoken a lot about them here today when you've asked me. So you can tell that I, I really, re- and, and many are dead now. So for me, I guess it's in that phrase, you know, pay it forward. When I was younger, why in the world are they helping? <laughs> They're so nice. Why is this person so nice? They go out of their way. It's been hours. And I was, I felt like a stone. It was so dumb. I felt like it's, oh my gosh, I'm wasting their time. Why are they doing this? It really was a mystery to me until I started to see how much they helped me. And it made me feel good to use that knowledge to help others. I felt like I was compelled to do it. So this idea of paying it forward, and I just was with a mentor earlier today, and she said, oh, you're so busy, I hate to take up your time. And I immediately thought, oh, wow, I used to feel like, (laughs) you seem so busy, I don't want to take up more of your time than I need to. And I said what they used to say to me, I enjoy spending time with you. And, you know, and I do, and I'm sure they did too. So now I get it. And so I'm really appreciative that I can share some of their kindness to me. So I guess if you're looking for a mentor, I mean, what you're really looking for is all the people that mentored that person. Who who are the ones that gave them input? And so you can learn something from everyone. I love that. And you're right. And sometimes it seems selfish in that, like the mentors, we really enjoy doing the mentoring, yes, right? right? It's yes. like a good balance to the rest of our lives, oh, right? Yes, definitely. And it's definitely. funny, that mentee perspective, like the first thing you do is apologize. I'm sorry, yes. I'm taking your time. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and the other thing I want to make a point of for trainees or, or anyone in, who is looking for a mentor, don't be afraid to formalize that relationship, right? Like call it out, ask that person to mentor, make it formalized. That's going to make it much more rich. What do you think about that? Oh, 100% yes. 100% yes. I encourage people to do that. Uh, When I speak to folks, I'll just just contact them, have a coffee or just meet them for a few minutes and then ask, would they mentor you? Definitely. I would encourage people to do that. A lot of people are so shy and there's no downside to asking. 
Yeah. And the other thing I just want to jump off that is in this new virtual world, you can look outside your institution too, yes. right? Like at the yeah. clinic, we are so fortunate that we have the most amazing minds right here in Cleveland. But if you are at a smaller institution, you can reach out like this virtual world. It's, it's endless, really. Yeah, it's opened the world to me. I'll tell you that. So yes, definitely. Everything you're saying. <laughs> Excellent, Serple. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed it very much. You were wonderful to talk with. It was easy. Thank you. Good. And is there any any last comments or thoughts that, that you wish that I asked about or anything else that you that you want to bring up? Well, I really want to thank you for doing this. I I think this is a wonderful way to expand mentorship too, isn't it? Absolutely. It's my honor. So thank you so much for your time. You are just an absolutely phenomenal human and all of the things. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. Join us again as we draw inspirations and insights from women doctors past, present, and future. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WPSA1. That's at WPSA and the number one. This podcast is supported by Cleveland Clinic's Women's Professional Staff Association as part of the Cleveland Clinic Centennial Celebration.